The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Vanguards of Healthcare podcast series. My name is Matt Henriksen, and I am the healthcare analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, the in-house equity research platform of Bloomberg. We are pleased to have with us Dave Fischel, CEO of Stereotaxis, a medical technology company that is innovating robotic technologies to treat cardiac arrhythmias. You can dive deeper into the financials by typing in STXS Equity Go on your Bloomberg terminal. David, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Matt. Thanks a lot for including me. Yeah, and so one of the things we like to see um, just with any of our guests on this podcast series is kind of um, different career paths that get, get you to your current role. Um, and so for you, why don't you start us off with the transition that has taken place at Stereotaxis since 2017 um, when you started it as the CEO. Um, walk us first how you became involved with Stereotaxis um, and then kind of then what you saw with the company when you first started at the helm as CEO and then what steps were implemented to kind of reignite the momentum within the company. Sure. So uh, I come to Stereotaxis and, and the operating role here uh, actually from the financial world. Um, I worked in a Israeli medical device uh, venture capital firm uh, after studying math at, uh, in university, then um, uh, went to work at a healthcare hedge fund based in Los Angeles called Daphne Capital Management. And there I was really focused on uh, high-tech medical device companies um, across the spectrum of clinical areas and, uh, and, and really kind of the, obviously the role uh, in the, on the buy side is to try to discover uh, technologies and companies that are underappreciated and, um, and, and I, it's kind of obviously it's a, it's a nice job to be able to do that in the medical device field uh, where you're pairing uh, technology and medicine and business all at the same time. And so I did that for, uh, for over a decade. And, um, and I came across Stereotaxis through that work. Um, uh, Stereotaxis is a publicly traded company. At the time, it was in, a, in, in around 2016, uh, as I was doing the due diligence, um, it was a very challenged uh, company. It, has had, it had had declining sales for multiple years. It had a significant amount of debt, uh, dwindling cash balance, and was on the edge of, of kind of going out of business. And what intrigued me was that the technology was very, very elegant in that it had a, a differentiated robotic mechanism of action that I believed was the probably the only approach that would ultimately allow robotics to transform the large field of endovascular surgery. 
um, endovascular surgeries have their own unique challenges and approaches, and we can get into that later, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's really kind of, there's been a few attempts over the years to bring robotics into that field, and uh, none of them had really been successful, and Stereotaxis had a very, very kind of creative approach for how to do so, um, which I found elegant, and I'd seen robotics transform other uh, medical fields. Uh, Dauphin Capital was one of the early investors in intuitive surgical, uh, 20 years ago, and Intuitive obviously went on to really uh, dramatically transform laparoscopic surgery. Uh, also, one of my first investments um, when I joined Daphne Capital was investing in Mako, uh, which uh, which became the leader, which was ultimately acquired by Stryker and became the leader of uh, robotics in uh, knee and hip arthroplasty. And so, kind of, we'd seen robotics transform other clinical fields, and this felt like a very good platform technology. Um, uh, for the endovascular field. Um, and so there was this discrepancy between a failing company on the one hand, but a very elegant technology on the other. And, uh, and the technology was actually working robustly in the real world. Uh, it had treated, at that point, uh, just under 100,000 patients. Now we're uh, at about 150,000 patients. Um, and the clinical data was as good as it gets. Um, so the first rule in uh, investing in healthcare is you ask yourself if, God forbid, uh, me or someone in my family had to have this procedure done or, or had this disease, would we want this drug or device uh, used on them? And, and it was a resounding yes. It, uh, it really kind of um, uh, using robotics in our clinical field, um, using stereotaxis technology, improves medicine for patients and enables treating patients that otherwise were left with no good therapy option at all. Um, and so that's a... That's an interesting uh, setup to have that type of uh, discrepancy um, between uh, kind of failure on the one hand and what is a very uh, differentiated technology with a good real-world validation and very good clinical data on the other end. And, um, and so that's what kind of, a, kind of attracted us to become involved and to try to build a, a, very, uh, a very good company um, off, of, uh, off of that foundation. Um, it's been obviously kind of a significant amount of effort since joining, but but a, a good one at that. There's um, been kind of three primary focuses that we've had over these uh, over these years, um, and kind of looking at them perhaps from kind of the easiest to implement in the shorter term versus the ones that we're still working through. Uh, the easiest ones to do was implementing good uh, corporate governance and financial stability, and so obviously. Uh, you don't want to be a, a company that has to raise money every year and is constantly diluting shareholders. Uh, you want to make sure that management and the board is fully aligned with the success of shareholders. Um, so we did several things kind of quickly uh, uh, as we started to make sure that board members were compensated fully in stock. My compensation is driven uh, um, uh, entirely also by uh, the success of the company and by stock. Um, and, and, and from a financial perspective, we were able to take a company that was burning a significant amount of money and had a net debt position into having kind of a healthy balance sheet and, uh, and a, sustainable, um, a sustainable financial position. And so that kind of was a, was a big first effort. Uh, the second effort was putting in place the right commercial infrastructure to ensure that existing users of our robotic technology can be as successful as possible. And so there's nothing... Um, particularly rocket science in, in that, but, uh, but 
you know, updating uh, the website so that the messaging uh, was uh, was consistent and and clear. Uh, we established um, a, a fellowship program to train uh, new fellows at, at sites uh, that have our robot on our technology. We uh, brought out to the field simulators so we could train physicians from uh, a computer from the comfort of their home. Uh, without them having to be on to, on the robot in order to be trained, uh, we we gave all sorts of materials to hospitals so that they could uh, communicate to their stakeholders, to their referral physicians and patients, the benefits that they provide to the community, and so kind of really a whole range of this commercial infrastructure. And then the last and kind of most um, most meaningful, impactful thing is uh, a comprehensive innovation strategy to address some of the structural barriers that limited stereotaxis in the in the past. Um, and I'm sure we'll probably get into more of this, but but kind of how do you make the robot very accessible uh, so that any hospital can adopt it relatively easily? How do you make um, uh, kind of an open ecosystem around your robot so that the benefits of robotics can be paired with other innovations in the field from other companies? How can you expand the value of the robot to new clinical applications? How can you implement digital surgery, digital technologies like automation and AI and image integrations into the robot to add a cognitive dimension to a to the value proposition. And so kind of that was really kind of our focus over the last few years and we're we're obviously still in it. We're still building stereotaxes up, but that's um that's kind of been our focus. Well, I tell you what, that's one of the best um synopsises I've gotten in an introduction. Um kind of telling the whole story in the first few minutes. Um kind of sometimes I do I need to ask the rest of the questions today? Um, but, but I'm going to. And so, um, you know, why don't we start by diving a little deeper into the landscape of the uh, endovascular surgery itself? Um, what I found interesting was you talked about um, what robotics has done for laparoscopic procedures and how Intuitive has been able to penetrate that market. You talked about Mako and how Stryker has been able to penetrate the orthopedic market. But let's talk about kind of where, what is the current landscape for endovascular surgery um, and kind of maybe what are some of the limitations of traditional surgery? And then, you know, you talked about there's other been other robotics that tried to um, get their, you know, get a foothold in that um, those surgery procedures, uh, and kind of what has been their limitation as well. Okay, sure. So I generally think that you can categorize procedural medicine surgeries into three broad buckets and it's not perfect, obviously, but it's a, it's a pretty good generalization and um, where you have open surgery, which is what you typically imagine when you think about a surgeon and open incision, graspers holding open the tissue, physician holding um, uh, uh, surgical tools in his or her hands and uh, and kind of executing the procedure. Um, and, and then kind of you have a laparoscopic surgery where uh, you use three, four, five functional sticks uh, through small incisions uh, in the body to, to execute a procedure. And then you have endovascular surgery where, as the, the name suggests, endo vascular, you're working within the vascular system, within the blood vessels of the body, and you use the blood vessels as a type of a type of highway to get you where you need to be in the body. So you make a small incision, uh, usually in the upper leg or in the arm, 
uh, you enter into a blood vessel and then you use those blood vessels in a non-invasive fashion to navigate to the heart or to the brain or to the periphery or to wherever else you need to go to to treat a patient. Um, and so endovascular surgery is a is a very, very broad field of procedures. Um, uh, there's, I mean, dozens and dozens of different types of procedures within the endovascular surgical field. And, uh, and there's, I mean, easily over $10 million, 10, 10 million uh, uh, of such procedures done each year uh, around the world. So it's a very, very common field. And you've seen over the last few decades, this, um, uh, this significant transition of various procedures from uh, more invasive procedures towards endovascular surgery because it is a very um, you know very limited invasiveness with just one small incision uh, and that kind of a reduced invasiveness means that there's less risk uh, there's more access to more patients to therapy and so kind of you've seen this transition over the years and some of the best examples of that transition are things like uh, cabbage surgery bypass surgery and uh, which was an invasive open chest procedure as stents coronary stents came out um, you know, kind of that uh, that provided access to care for patients that would have a heart attack. Suddenly, you have millions of people getting coronary stents um, uh, who previously wouldn't undergo a cabbage surgery because of the risk and the and the 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 chance that the cabbage surgery would do more harm than good. Uh, you also had obviously people who were getting cabbage surgery who now get stents. You still have some people who get cabbage surgery, but. But, but kind of obviously um, the field of patients who are able to get some therapy for, uh, for coronary blockage uh, increased uh, many, many multiples. Uh, the same thing has happened over the last decade in, uh, in heart valves, um, where transcatheter valves has become kind of one of the most um, uh, successful medical device field, obviously driven by, uh, by Edwards. Uh, you have the same thing in some of the brain aneurysms, uh, strokes. So kind of across the spectrum of medicine, you see this overarching trend towards less and less invasive surgery. And endovascular is, as, uh, you know, is, is kind of as, as low of an invasiveness as it gets. And uh, if kind of you think about, though, the challenge of endovascular surgery, it is, on the one hand, amazing that we are able to do any of these procedures, that you can do a small incision in the leg and do heart surgery or brain surgery on a patient. That is really an amazing um, uh, uh, feat of uh, human ingenuity and an amazing demonstration of the progress that we make as mankind. But there's a, an underlying challenge, which is that the physician is navigating now a flexible device. It has to be flexible to navigate uh, through the blood vessels. And they have to navigate it in, a, in kind of the tortuous, delicate vasculature of the human body. They only are able to hold on to this device and, and implement control on the device at one end, at the handle, which is near the axis site. Imagine, you know, um, near the leg area. Uh, but the procedure where all the therapy is actually being delivered is two, three, four feet away on the other end of this flexible device where, you know, in the heart or in the brain or, or, or where, where, the, where the patient needs therapy. And so you can imagine that it's almost like um, 
uh, you know, the two analogies I, I typically think about either is a, um, a kind of us uh, sitting here at the desk uh, holding a pencil uh, from its eraser and trying to do a delicate, uh, you know, to write in a very, very delicate way while only holding on to the eraser or like trying to uh, use a gardening hose, but holding the gardening hose three feet back from where the, the, the edge of the hose is. And so it's obviously that mechanism of action leads to limited precision of the tip. It means that the tip isn't steady, it isn't uh, stable. Uh, you have the risk, safety risks for the patient because you're using a device which still has some rigidity to it, which can cause harm. Um, if you move it in a dangerous fashion, you can puncture the heart, you can dissect vessels. And so those are some of these limitations of, uh, of traditional endovascular surgery and the types of things that we really uh, look to try to uh, improve significantly with robotics. All right. And that, that then kind of, you know, it's interesting, the, the, the garden hose analogy. So, you know, trying to be able to do, you know, very fine movements with a hose, you know, that's two to four feet away. Um, so that, that brings us to your Genesis system. Um, so walk us through the overview of this technology um, and you know, how does you know, robotic magnetic navigation work? Sure. So what we do uh, at its core is we said this mechanism of trying to navigate a flexible endovascular catheters from the handle to the tip is inherently um, has inherent limitations and weaknesses and risks to it. And so can we actually allow for direct control of the distal tip of an interventional device? Can we, where the action is taking place, where the therapy is taking place, can we control that tip of the catheter um, kind of uh, with, with kind of great precision? And the way that we do that is, uh, I mean, it's, it's uh, it's, uh, it, it, when it was originally envisioned, um, if, if I was a financial analyst at the time looking at the company before I had seen that it was actually working in the real world, I would have probably given it a very, very low likelihood of, um, of ever being successful. It is kind of a, one of those uh, science fiction types of ideas. But we use a very precise magnetic fields to steer the tip of an interventional catheter. And so catheters or other interventional devices like guide wires uh, um, uh, that, that are used with our robot have a small amount of magnetic material in their distal tip section. And then our robot is uh, consists of kind of two halves to the robot that are placed on both sides of the patient in an operating room. And a physician from a computer cockpit is able to uh, direct the movement of a catheter uh, in using an intuitive uh, user interface. And we know how to take what the physician wants uh, to be done uh, to translate that into adjusting the magnetic field around the patient. And by doing so, uh, moving the catheter directly at the tip. And when you're, you can imagine that the magnetic fields are uh, almost like these invisible fingers that are allowing you to hold on to the tip of the catheter directly. And when you do that now, um, uh, using this kind of mechanism of uh, robotic magnetic navigation, when you do that, you now have an ability to 
move the catheter tip with millimeter precision, uh, one millimeter, one degree precision. And so you can really kind of control its movement in a way that is impossible otherwise. You can hold the catheter completely steady at a specific point in space. And you're doing all of this actually with a catheter which is much, much safer and softer and more gentle. If you think about a traditional handheld manual catheter, it has to have rigidity along its entire body because if it doesn't have rigidity, then the, trend, the, the forces that you apply at the handle, none of them would actually go to the, to the tip. Imagine if you have a piece of, you know, I don't know, a piece of string, right? Uh, that's very, very soft and flexible. What you do on one end, none of it would translate. All of the, all of the torque would be built up into the system. And so you need rigidity in order to, to navigate a manual catheter. In our case, because we're steering the catheter directly from the tip using magnetic fields, we can actually design the shaft of the catheter to be very soft and gentle. And that means that you can actually now move the catheter through the body um, with, a, with a much, much better safety profile. You don't have the risk of mechanically perforating uh, delicate tissue. You can really kind of design the catheter in such a way that you limit the, the forces that it's able to apply to the tissue to a safe range. And so that's kind of how our, our overall mechanism of action work and why maybe kind of what I said in the, in the original introduction, why I think this is um, uh, the mechanism that is best suited for advancing robotics into the field of endovascular surgery um, is, is, is kind of correct. Uh, this is, it's really kind of a unique mechanism of action to, this, uh, to the clinical challenges of endovascular surgery. Okay, and then let's let's go through that the, the flexible catheter just a little bit more. I just want to make sure that I understand it as uh, as much as the the listeners. Um, this catheter is it's different than the traditional catheter, but how is it? Is the magnetic navigation the one that's steering it in the right direction? Does the doctor have to do any manual steering itself, and the magnets kind of? create like a little bumper that says, oh, you've gone too far. Um, how, how, how does that work? So the, the, the doctor being able to do any or none of the kind of movements itself. Sure, I'll, I'll give you the full. Uh, I'll give you the full background. This is something that oftentimes many people get confused on. Even sometimes our users don't fully understand how the mechanism of action works. So um, sometimes. So. So imagine an operating room, a typical operating room setting, and you have a patient on an operating room table, an x-ray in the room, and then you have our robots on both sides of the patient. Each robot has a magnet uh, that can be, uh, its orientation and tilt can be adjusted uh, using kind of uh, robotic arms. So that is kind of the vision of the operating room. You also have then a control room. Uh, immediately next to, adjacent to the operating room, with a large um, cockpit-like um, setting, a big screen that aggregates all of the patient information, all the procedural information onto one large screen, and the physician sits at that screen, kind of digesting all of the procedural information and executing the procedure from that. So they can tell from that cockpit using a mouse and keyboard and intuitive UI, uh, how they want uh, the catheter to be moved, how they want to execute the procedure using our robotic system. And magnetic fields 
are are I mean they're magic. Uh, it's it's like most things in uh, in physics and science. Uh, there's an aspect of uh, of magic uh, uh, to it. And um, and if you think about magnetic fields, though, there's there's kind of two different types of uh, properties that that all of us are used to in our day to day life, but uh, but probably don't oftentimes think about in in any depth. Uh, the first is uh, magnetic fields. Magnets have kind of attractive, repulsive. Uh, forces. So if you have a, you know, um, a, a nail on the floor and you kind of put a magnet close to it, you might start pushing the nail away or you'll attract the nail towards you. Um, and that's kind of the repulsive attractive forces. The other force that magnets have is if you're holding a compass in your hand right now, the compass needle is going to want to point towards the North Pole. But the compass needle is not trying to fly out of your hand to the North Pole. It's trying to align itself with the North Pole. And so one of the things that we do, which is, it's kind of a, that's a significant uh, technical challenge. And that's really where kind of uh, one of our core expertise and IPs are, is, is, is we design our magnetic fields to actually counteract all attractive and repulsive forces. So where between the two uh, sides of our robot, where let's say the patient's chest is, you have a spherical area um, where the procedure gets performed within, where the magnetic fields are perfectly canceled out in that there's no attractive or repulsive force whatsoever. What you have is a artificial North Pole that is created, and that artificial North Pole can be pointed in any direction in 3D space. And, and it can be a very, very precise, right, with one degree, one, you know, one degree precision of, uh, of that North Pole. And so the catheter becomes, with the magnet in its tip, becomes to some extent like a compass needle. And we have another little mechanism that's integrated with our robot, which provides more slack or less slack. It advances the catheter forward or back, and so from a mouse, using a mouse and keyboard, from this kind of control cockpit, a physician can steer where the gay want the catheter to be oriented towards, moving forward and back along that orientation. And all of the navigation of the catheter happens through that mechanism. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's much different than a traditional catheter where I'm thinking of the, you know, there's the, you know, you have to apply torque to twist it, or there's a couple that, you know, move forward and backwards, but that's, that's essentially it. Um, yeah. Okay. No, that's, that's very helpful. Um, there's no, there's no, there's no dancing that a finger wrist, elbow, shoulder dance that a physician does by the table to try to get to, you know, applying forces in all these funny ways onto the handle of the catheter to try to move the tip. There's none of that in our procedures. You do have sometimes I've been with, uh, with physicians who are using our system and who are new to our system and have obviously done thousands of, uh, of uh, manual catheter procedures over the years. And so you'll see them sitting behind the cockpit with their hands on the mouse and still their shoulders will do a little dance while doing a procedure because they have this muscle memory uh, built over thousands of procedures in many years. But, but yeah, we, we obviously negate the need for that completely. Uh, that's funny. That sounds like that's going to be a, a TikTok trend at some point in the future. <laughs> uh, but so <laughs> back, back to the Genesis system though. Um, what, what are the initial indications that you've received approval for? So all of our clinical use right now is actually in one specific clinical indication, which is the treatment of uh, heart arrhythmias 
uh, when the heart beats irregularly, um, um, and there's a range of arrhythmias. Obviously, uh, you know, you have uh, kind of a dozen plus different types of arrhythmias, but uh, kind of to treat heart arrhythmias, there's a there's a fairly common procedure. There's over a, a million uh, such uh, done each year. Um, uh, called cardiac ablation, where you navigate a small catheter from the leg into the heart, and then you actually burn some of the um, heart muscle, you know, in a very precise way, you burn specific parts of the heart muscle in order to isolate some of the misbehaving heart muscle uh, cells or redirect the electrical current through the heart muscle in a very specific pattern. And so that has become a very uh, uh, accepted, very beneficial form of therapy for patients that suffer arrhythmias. Um, and that's, that's the specific uh, application that we've been focused on to date. We're working on um, uh, uh, ways to expand the value of our technology to several more uh, clinical applications, but that's the one where we have uh, all of our clinical experience and we have about 100 hospitals that have treated now about 150,000 patients uh, all in that clinical field. Okay. And then, so, you know, one of the things that you mentioned too, when you first looked at this uh, technology, um, you, you, you said something along the lines of, you know, you, from your financial analyst's point of view, low probability uh, success rate um, sounds like very you know, biotech phase one type of probabilities that you're calculating. Um, what, what, what made you turn the page and what made you think, oh, this is actually a viable technology? What clinical data did you see that was like, okay, I, I see where this is going? So I think what was most exciting for me was obviously robotic systems are very complex and you've seen how even companies like Medtronic or Johnson and Johnson uh, trying to build systems that are competitive to intuitive surgical will spend uh, billions of dollars even 10 billion dollars plus trying to build competitive systems and it takes them decade plus and uh, and and it's a very very challenging endeavor so to have a, a robotic technology that is unique uh, provides value in a new clinical field, a large clinical field, um, uh, was uh, was kind of exciting to start. The things that de-risked it for me was the fact that the technology was being used robustly in the real-world setting. Right? We have about 100 hospitals, have treated by now 150,000 patients. That's not two, three, four hospitals that are affiliated with us that are using it. It's kind of, it's a robust enough uh, use where you have uh, a whole range of hospitals that are not university hospitals, not in it for the research, not in it for the sex appeal of having a robot, but are bread and butter community hospitals that adopt our technology for the benefits it provides patients, physicians, and the, and the hospital itself. And so that kind of a, seeing that there was that robust day-to-day -day use was a big uh, factor in my mind. Uh, you can also look at, obviously, we're publicly traded and uh, all our financials are online. The fact that our gross margins on service contracts are 
our healthy gross margins that shows that also the system is relatively stable uh, in the real world setting and uh, and um, and kind of that's also important obviously just you know you could have i've seen many companies over the years where the technology works but it's hard to get it uh, to work consistently and reliably and and that can be um, that can be a, an Achilles heel of a company that otherwise could have become very successful. So the fact that it was working kind of smoothly in the real world was helpful. And from a clinical data perspective, it's it's um, generally in procedural medicine, unlike, let's say, in drugs, you don't have randomized, controlled, prospective trials. That's kind of um, uh, very rare, almost impossible. Intuitive Surgical has has none like that, despite now um, you know, having uh, I don't know seven thousand plus uh, systems out there in the world and treating over a million, almost I think this year two million patients uh, each year uh, has never had a trial like that. But what you see in kind of in Stereo Texas data is we have about uh, by now about four hundred fifty. Uh, peer-reviewed publications on our technology uh, in clinical use out there and and consistently across every publication every head-to-head publication where there is a, a, you know the same physicians at the same hospital are treating some patients robotically and some manually in every one you have a significant reduction in in adverse events where uh, you know kind of when you look across the spectrum of it, a 70 plus percent reduction in uh, in adverse events for patients. And you have a relatively good trend toward improving uh, acute and long-term success. And then you have a whole host of patients, uh, uh, children, um, uh, patients with congenital heart disease where they were born with um, uh, abnormality for the heart and then almost all of them uh, that survive to adulthood have arrhythmias as adults where you just can't get normal traditional catheters to get where you need to go and we allow treatment of these patients where otherwise it would be impossible and so reading through that clinical data was kind of um was uh, heartening and it also makes it kind of a very meaningful mission to build a company like Stereotaxis and to nurse it back into health and to kind of put it to its full potential because you recognize the positive impact that that has uh, broadly on the world and the way it can actually improve care for 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 many many people um, and so you know some of the other um processes of the, you know, running a company is the, the, the pipeline. And I know I've heard of part of the ecosystem is potentially going to be the magic ablation catheter. Um, so how does that technology pro- um, differ compared to either traditional catheters or even the uh, flexible catheter that you currently use? Sure. So when you look at our, our innovation strategy, and I, I really call it um, kind of a strategic innovation uh, effort because it's, uh, it's, um, it's innovations that not only improve the clinical performance of the technology, but has real structural improvements uh, to our ecosystem, to stereotaxis's position overall at the reach of them, there's three main thrusts there. One is how do you make robotics broadly accessible and affordable to hospitals um, so that it can be adopted at scale, um, uh, you know, order of magnitude larger than we are now. The second is in the electrophysiology field, the cardiac ablation market, where it's currently our full clinical focus, how do we build an open ecosystem around our technology and reduce the dependency that we built our business on? 
Um, and then the third is how do we expand their technology into new clinical applications? Your question on magic really goes towards that second um, uh, uh, kind of strategic effort, which is in electrophysiology, in the field where all of our procedures are currently being done, stereotaxis makes the robot, but we actually don't make the ablation catheter. The, the therapeutic device that has little magnets in the tip that is steered by a robot, we don't make that ourselves. That is actually produced um, and sold directly to, uh, to hospitals uh, by Johnson & Johnson. And there's a, a longer history there, but, but um, over 20 or about 20 years ago, uh, Stereotexas and Johnson & Johnson entered into a relationship where, um, where kind of that came about. And that uh, relationship obviously allowed Stereotaxis to, uh, to kind of to more quickly uh, enter the field and successfully kind of address uh, the clinical challenges in the field and, and, um, and grow as a company. But it also had um, uh, real challenges to it. Uh, the catheter is by now, the catheter that is currently being used in all of our procedures is a nearly 20-year-old catheter. Um, it uh, it's obviously then has not gone through all of the you know the healthy pace of continuous innovation, continuous improvement, which any uh, technology should go through. Um, uh, given that another company is selling it directly to customers, we are not able to uh, to control the customer experience there. Um, there's all sorts of dependencies that are not great, and there's also uh, uh, financial and strategic implications of that. And so uh, the Magic Catheter is a catheter fully owned by Stereotaxis. We worked with a contract manufacturer in Germany to, uh, uh, to develop and manufacture it, but it's fully owned by Stereotaxis. And uh, we incorporate into the catheter many clinical improvements that... Um, that kind of make the catheter uh, like uh, you know competitive to modern manual catheters while obviously maintaining that clinical benefit and the differentiation of it being robotically magnetically steered um, and so uh, things like reducing fluid load for a patient providing more, better and more information uh, to the physician from the tip of the catheter allowing for more consistent lesions, more consistent forces. There's a whole host of clinical improvements to the catheter. Um, and so that's obviously important for the patients and physicians um, that rely on our technology. And then beyond that, Magic also provides a structural financial strategic and benefits to stereotaxis because suddenly we are not dependent on another party. We uh, take into kind of uh, take take our own destiny into our own hands, uh, we would also then uh, be able to sell the catheter directly to, uh, to customers. So we change our financial model from making approximately $1,000 per procedure to making uh, several several times that, three, four, five thousand $5,000 per procedure. Um, and so there's kind of uh, various benefits, obviously, to the Magic Catheter, and that's a core, core part of our uh, innovation strategy. Okay. And then, you know, one of the things, you know, with uh, electrophysiology and cardiac ablation is that they're starting to branch out into different types of energy sources that are used. There's uh, radio frequency, there's cryoablation, and now the newest one is uh, pulse field ablation or uh, PFA. Um, 
Is there one that you're going to be initially designing Magic Catheter to use? Um, and then will there ultimately be um, a um, an option where you could choose any of those um, energy sources? Yep, it's a it's a great question. And the EP field is a very dynamic field. It's it's kind of uh, probably one of the most attractive and most dynamic uh, medical device markets right now, uh, both in terms of its size, its growth, and the amount of innovation that is taking place within it. Uh, we're the only robotic company in the field at all, but but uh, but but outside of robotics, there's a huge amount of innovation in this field. And um, what I'd say is that radio frequency remains the primary energy source used across the range of catheters. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm guesstimating it, but probably right now in the field, it's roughly, let's say, 75% RF and 25% and cryo or something in that range. And if you look at the totality of, uh, of uh, procedures done, uh, including kind of SVTs, AF, and, and VTs, um, uh, as the kind of some of the bit broader cat categories of procedures. When you look at PFA, uh, PFA is expected to cannibalize predominantly the cryo field over the next few years, and, and then obviously to have some impact on the RF uh, usage as well. Um, but it seems like most people expect there to be a world where both RF and PFA uh, each provide their own differentiated benefits and kind of coexist uh, uh, in the future. Uh, the magic catheter is an RF ablation catheter, so it's really designed to be a workhorse um, uh, ablation catheter uh, across the spectrum of cases, um, like we see currently uh, the 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 catheter the the thermocool RMT catheter which is the catheter that J and J provides uh, in collaboration with us uh, that's used in all of our procedures is really a workhorse catheter that's used across the spectrum of arrhythmias and so this is kind of a um, an improved version of that catheter uh, we have though implemented though this whole concept of an open ecosystem right? we kind of hashtag open EP is what we call it where we wanted to make the benefits of our robotics technology, precision, stability, safety, to be able to pair that with a broader range of the innovations coming out there by a host of companies uh, in the field. And we did it really kind of through two approaches. So one was on the diagnostic side of things. We implemented an open mapping uh, API, a software kind of uh, um, uh, infrastructure which allowed us to more easily integrate with a host of companies that have innovative uh, preoperative imaging or intraoperative mapping technologies. And so kind of we've worked with a, with a whole host of them. Uh, we recently announced this year a collaboration with Abbott integrating with their mapping system. We've also worked with uh, uh, companies like um, uh, Adas 3D and Inheart and Vivo and Vector, which are all private companies uh, uh, that have kind of uh, innovative uh, preoperative imaging companies. Uh, one has an AI kind of imaging uh, company. And so kind of we've, we've implemented this software ecosystem so that we can 
take the value of these various diagnostic technologies and incorporate it into the robot as seamlessly presented to the physician well, uh, use that data for the computer of the robot to help in guidance. And so that really kind of has been one big aspect of our open EP eco, um, kind of uh, strategy. The other one on the catheter side is that we know that we cannot, as a company of our size, build a whole host of, uh, of, of catheters and, and kind of really compete across the spectrum of all sorts of catheters out there. And we don't need to, to be highly successful. We, we have currently half a percent roughly market share of the cardiac ablation field. I have no doubt that magic by itself could take us to uh, 5, 10, 20% market share. Um, and, and obviously that would, you know, would be a, a highly, highly successful and impactful company uh, uh, if we did so. But we do want to be able to pair the benefits of various other technologies with our robot. And so we have um, facilitated that by, by sharing a lot of the information of how you design a magnetically steered catheter with various partners. So we have a, a collaboration with Microport in China, where they develop, uh, they're developing also uh, both ablation and diagnostic catheters that uh, that can be used with our robot. Um, we've uh, announced uh, uh, that we did preclinical uh, studies with a variant of the magic catheter being used with PFA generators. Um, so we've done kind of PFA procedures with our technology, and there's a host of smaller companies out there, uh, private companies that have, um, that have kind of wanted to do such work with us. We've also worked with a couple other companies, a few other companies that have developed variants of their own catheters that are uh, still, you know, in the, either the early stages of commercialization or uh, pre pre commercial, but making variants of their catheters that would be steered robotically with our mechanism. And so this kind of open ecosystem approach, I think, will lend itself to uh, over the coming years uh, a host of choices for physicians, which allow them then to better better decide what they will use for each individual patient, given their that patient's uh, unique challenge. Okay. And so now that I'm, you know, to kind of summarize that all in, we, I mean, we, we talked about the Genesis system. We talked about the development of the magic ablation catheter, which by the way, is there, is there a, a timeline for that either for clinical trials or product approval? Yeah, so we're we're starting a trial in Europe imminently. Uh, we just announced on our earnings call last week that we're waiting for uh, the final country approvals to do so, and that those approvals should be received by the middle of December. And um, we will submit in the first quarter uh, the Magic Catheter again for CE Mark approval, and we've also uh, uh, just announced in the call uh, last week that we will be uh, submitting a PMA supplement for the catheter in the U.S. to the FDA uh, by the end of this year. So we're we're in those kind of last uh, last stages of getting this catheter uh, to market. Okay, so it, it will be in the market before we know it. Um, and so going back to the, the my question before I interrupted myself, um, you have Genesis, you have the magic ablation catheter coming out, and then we talked in depth about this open source that allows you to connect with companies large and small with their mapping system or with their catheter. Um, it's, you know, how do you choose which is your favorite child out of those three? <laughs> um, that is a very hard choice. So, I, um, I, 
I think you do need to. I use the term ecosystems a lot. Um, and I think you do need to think about things in terms of ecosystems. You cannot just look at an individual technology or product on its own, like the magic catheter or the Genesis robot um, or a guide wire. You can't think about it as its own um, individual product that has its own commercial opportunity independent of the others. You really have to think about it in terms of this ecosystem approach. How do the technologies work together? What do you ultimately enable a physician, a hospital to be able to do to treat patients? And so that's why kind of um, going back to what I mentioned a few minutes ago, this kind of three-pronged or you know, kind of core part of the strategy being how do we make robots broadly accessible and affordable um, so that any hospital that is interested, any physician that's interested in having a robot can get it without all sorts of structural uh, challenges? How do you make sure that in electrophysiology there is modern catheters, modern integrations uh, available with the robot so that a physician doesn't have to make trade-offs between the benefits of precision, stability, uh, safety of the robot, but having to use catheters that are 20 years old? And, and how do you expand the value of the robot so it's not just a cardiac ablation electrophysiology robot, but it's really a platform robotic system broadly across endovascular surgery? And I think about kind of those three are kind of all kind of very, very much um, and necessary uh, core parts and synergistic parts of the strategy. And so I kind of, it's, it's hard to isolate one from the other. You really kind of do, do need to advance all three of those in parallel. In addition to that, we're doing things on the digital surgery side. I mentioned we have kind of the, uh, a special uh, relationship and effort taking place in China. So there's other kind of uh, core things, but I'd say that those kind of three things, that's the, that's kind of the, the core, core aspect of our strategy. Okay. And then, so now just, I'm thinking about, you know, you have the magic catheter coming out probably in 12 to 18 months. Um, we talked about other endovascular procedures that could potentially benefit from this. So when I'm looking at how this robotic technology can play a role in endovascular surgery in five, 10 years, um, whether it's AFib or other procedures, what, what are you envisioning? So there's a host of clinical challenges when I look at endovascular procedures where the underlying challenge is reaching the place where you have to deliver therapy because getting there requires navigating all sorts of tortuosity and you're doing so in small, delicate vessels. And, um, and so that's kind of just inherently the challenge. Once you get to that place where you need to deliver therapy, actually... Doing so isn't very difficult, but the real challenge is getting there. And I can give kind of a, let's say, you know, stroke patient has a, a stroke uh, uh, deep in their brain. Uh, you want to navigate a catheter uh, into the brain uh, to the stroke. Then you can aspirate the clot out or you can kind of uh, uh, use various tools to pull the clot out. Uh, Getting there is oftentimes very, very difficult. Similarly, um, uh, patients, certain patients that have uh, solid tumor cancers, uh, like liver cancer, you want to embolize the vessels that are feeding that cancer uh, uh, to, to starve and, and kill the cancer. You know, 
getting into those vessels, uh, being able to deliver the embolization agents uh, in a precise fashion to the vessels that are feeding the cancer but not feeding the healthy part of the liver. That's a challenging, challenging case. And so there's a whole host, you know, um, we talk about kind of five core markets that we want to go into outside of electrophysiology, but there's a whole host of clinical challenges out there where still you're not able to do it endovascularly well or consistently, and so patients either don't get any therapy or have to have highly invasive procedures as an alternative, and that's where uh, we think we can provide a lot of value. And um, when you steer a guide wire or a guide catheter or any other kind of interventional device from the distal tip like we do with our magnetic fields, you allow a soft, gentle, flexible device to, to navigate all sorts of bends and twists and turns. And the way I'd, I think about it is, let's say if you're driving a car down the street, you have no problem doing a left turn at one uh, intersection and then a right turn and then a left turn and then a right turn and then a left turn because you're, you're always turning from where you are. Uh, imagine that you had to do those bends and twists and turns, but you're, you're uh, being navigated from your back and, uh, and every time you're, you're applying force from the back, it, it has to go through each of those turns just to reach where you are currently. Once you do one, two turns, there's no way anymore to do an additional turn. And that's where uh, really our mechanism, I think, can provide a lot of value. And we've been able to work. Uh, we've been fortunate to have uh, physicians, uh, interventional cardiologists, interventional radiologists, uh, neurosurgeons uh, who have worked with us and have, um, have kind of uh, demonstrated the value uh, and kind of educated us on the value in a broader range of procedures. And so I think kind of as we uh, really the gating item to starting to uh, commercialize in that, those fields is having the right interventional tools available, the right guide wires, guide catheters with magnets in their tip section so that they can be used with our robot. Uh, the robot is already the same robot would be able to be used in those procedures. And so um, we're working on uh, both a guide wire and a guide catheter. Uh, we expect uh, in the coming months to do a submission uh, in the first half of next year. And, um, and so uh, that's really kind of, that will be our start to, uh, uh, to starting to provide the, the value in those procedures with our robot. Well, it's very exciting to see that we're just in the early innings of this um, potential transition. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us today. It was, um, it was, it was great to hear the story. Thank you very much for all the thoughtful questions and for including us on your show. And I would like to thank all the listeners uh, for tuning in for this episode. Um, feel free to join us again in the future for future episodes. Um, you can also click on the follow on the app that you use to listen to this podcast. Thank you and take care.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.